Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company at the beginning of a new week. ADH TV, remember, is your new nightly home of common sense viewing, filled with strong opinions and unmissable interviews. Last week, I interviewed Professor Ian Plymer about the folly behind net zero, the fact that pursuing this green transition, or as some politicians call it, decarbonisation, will further impoverish lives. People need cheap and reliable power to survive. It's okay for someone on over $350,000 Chris Bowen, I'm talking about you, and you won't come on this program because you can't answer the questions. It's okay for someone on a big salary to mouth this renewables nonsense, but the majority of people are struggling to keep the lights on and the heater running. My interview with Ian Plymer has had over 150,000 views. And here are politicians and the woke business world, they know better, talking ad nauseum about something which the public are not convinced about. Sure, save the planet. We're all interested in that, but not in a way which will plunge our economy into further debt, send jobs offshore, make electricity bills dearer, and force households into power blackouts. And I can assure you, that's what's coming our way. Those who can afford it, of course, and consume the most, are asking those who can't afford it to suck it up and be content on living with less. It is a shabby deal for hard-working families trying to put food on the table, pay their mortgage and send their children to a good school. But these same elites who lecture non-stop about reducing our carbon footprint are the ones who jet all over the world. Half of the eastern suburbs and those living in affluent areas in North Sydney are over in Europe, enduring a European summer. These are the same electorates, remember, who voted for teal independence. Teal independence who are financially backed by this Climate 200 mob, 
are the ones telling us there's a climate crisis. Yet their constituents are queuing up at Sydney Airport, ready to head to Mykonos. It is hypocrisy at its finest. Or then there's the Prime Minister, who goes to the Pacific Islands Forum and declares a climate emergency. But he's been on a taxpayer-funded plane belching out carbon dioxide emissions. For the past two months, he's been to Tokyo, Indonesia, Madrid, Paris, Fiji. If you wanted to reduce your carbon footprint and you want net zero emissions, well, wouldn't you video call into these forums? Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the right way to go about diplomacy. What I am suggesting to politicians who talk this rubbish is practice what you preach. These scaremongering climate alarmists love their air travel. They want others to catch trains and sail to their destinations, but they aren't prepared to do it themselves. Remember, the green transition only serves to benefit the eco-millionaires who've invested in it and are aided by government subsidies paid for by you. There's nothing in it for the battler. Shortly, I'll have something to say about interest rates. The same principle applies. Those who create the problem, the politicians, make others pay. I'll also speak to the talented South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who tied the bureaucracy in knots, remember, when they couldn't define a woman. He has more disturbing news for us and wait till you hear the bureaucracy's definition of a woman. Matt Canavan, the gifted Queensland Senator who talks sense on the energy crisis and more and more people are listening, he'll join me later. I'll also have something to say about the overnight triumph of the Queensland golfer Cameron Smith, who's played his way into a remarkable history, the new British Open champion. A word or two about rugby and that spendthrift Malcolm Turnbull. And it might be time for the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt to hand in his Guernsey. I have alarming figures about tourists from Bali entering this country with next to no checks. Now remember, you can share your views with me. Tell me what you think. Email me, Alan Jones at adh.tv. Alan Jones at adh.tv. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Look, there's no point in messing around. The honeymoon for the Albanese government is well and truly over. From the Prime Minister down, it would be instructive if they noted the warnings from the punter. You see, Labor campaigned ferociously to win government, and they brazenly talk about a mandate with only 32.8% of the vote. It's no use, therefore, complaining about the trillion dollars of debt, bad though that is. Indeed, on that issue, we now learn that as interest rates go up, so too will interest on that debt to the tune of about an extra 13 billion, an extra 13 billion. At the time of the budget, you're saying, how do you get to 13 billion? Explain. At the time of the March budget, interest rates on government debt were assumed to average 2.2% over the next four years. But the new Treasurer says interest rates are averaging 3.5%. So, listen to this, in the four-year period from this financial year, the new Treasurer says the government is on track to spend $99.1 billion in interest on its debt, compared to the March forecast of $86.1 billion. That's an extra $13 billion, $99.1 billion. But 
Family assistance payments are only 85.9 billion. Payments to people with a disability, 80.9 billion. Where in the election was there any debate on debt? But it's the same old, same old. A national cabinet meeting on Saturday. Where the hell did this unconstitutional device come from? A Morrison invention, now presumably perpetuated by Albanese. Is the Prime Minister in control or not? Or does he think he owes the Labor Premiers a favour because they made Morrison's job such a nightmare via the National Cabinet that they helped put Albanese into the lodge? We need to know whether Prime Minister Albanese is going to take sole charge to cope with COVID concerns and so far nothing on the dreaded foot and mouth disease. I'll look at that later in the program. But you see, the National Cabinet, as one writer called it, the Federation of Dunces, carries with its convening the smell of money. And the Premier's line up like modern day versions, as Ashley Georgeson from Adelaide writes, modern day versions of Oliver Twist with their well-polished hands out, not begging, but demanding more recompense for their failing health systems and something called COVID welfare. Well, having given a nod to the spiralling debt and agreed last week that the workers' pandemic leave payments, which ended on June 30, would not be reinstated because of the spiralling levels of debt, the Prime Minister has rolled over. The cost of the pandemic leave disaster payment given to workers that don't have sick leave entitlements was nearly $2 billion in the year to June 30. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet, who no longer seems to worry about debt, argues if the state's imposing health orders, that is, you must work from home, then the state should be there to provide financial support to help people get through, unquote. Well, that's all well and good. So, do we repeat the mistakes of the past? You see, they'll all get 750 bucks, no matter what they were earning prior to working from home. And the Albanese government will bathe themselves in the praise that his government has listened and restored the payments for sick leave for casual workers. Well, he listened to whom? Not those who are saddled with the continuing burden of debt now and for years and years into the future. I might add, the government could make a healthy start by retrieving the 18 billion that was overpaid to businesses under so-called COVID payments. But we can't run the economy like this and we can't keep blaming Putin for the obstacles to our economic goals. Let's face it, what kind of economy are we running when unemployment fell to 3.5% in June? We were told that last week. Surely that's a good thing, a 48-year low. But no sooner did the good news arrive than we're told interest rates must go up. Suddenly, the unemployment figure automatically means wage increases, does it? And that means inflation will rise. And that means we get out the blunt monetary hammer of interest rates and belt up every business and every worker. This is absurd and there's no way to run an economy, which relates to the National Cabinet forking out more money in so-called COVID payments. The Reserve Bank will say it must heed these inflationary pressures. The Reserve Bank has become an ATM for spendthrift governments. Debt, taxes, printing money, when is this stuff going to stop and who will stop it? The fundamental illness, it's simple. Government overspending. The US Congress in 1984 had a pay-as-you-go law. Every dollar of spending by government had to be matched by an equivalent cut or a tax increase. While that law was in place, the budget was balanced. The moment it was lifted, the budget took off. But something's got to give and Chalmers is going to have to do the giving. 
give notice that the increased spending is over. Are you going to increase taxes or increase spending and ignore the debt? Because I'll tell you something, this economic crisis like the energy crisis will get worse. And when it does, voter attitudes will change rapidly. The Albanese government has to reduce government spending now. And any government which promised to spend more has failed to grasp the gravity of our predicament. We want grown-up leaders prepared to take tough decisions rather than talk about them. And if we have a government ready to spend first and ask questions later, they don't deserve to be in government. There will always be voters who want to shut their eyes and vote for handouts. But the day of reckoning has arrived. We want politicians who'll face reality and cut spending. In that way, we can cut taxes and prices and inflation and interest rates. Where is there such a leader? Now, I'm joined by the Senator from South Australia, Senator Alex Antich. Proof of the fact that there are very good people in the Liberal Party in Canberra, but a lot of the good ones don't get a Guernsey. This is the man, remember, who tied the bureaucracy in knots when he asked a simple question to the head of the Federal Department of Health, a professor, no less, albeit a woke professor, Professor Brendan Murphy, how he would define a woman. Again, listen to this. For with a very simple question for the department, and that is one which has troubled me for a great deal of time with the bureaucracy here. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? <coughs> department of Health. Definition of a man, definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. Basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are, there are a variety of definitions and I, I think a simple perhaps, one. perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer we should take that on notice. You're going to take on notice yeah. the question of what a woman is? No, well, there, there are a variety. It's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very contested space at the moment, Senator. It's not I just mean, a woman who's born a woman. But there are definitions in That's terms hilarious. of how people identify themselves. So we're happy to provide our working that definition is on one of the, I've only been here two years. That's the best thing I've seen thus far. Thank you so much. Oh, give me a break. You just can't believe that, can you? It has taken some time, but Professor Murphy has come up with a definition. Having told us, you heard that, there are a variety of definitions. It is a very contested space. Well, it took 78 days for Senator Antich to receive a 78-word response from the Health Department. It appears on your screens. This is the official definition provided by the Health Department, and I quote, the frameworks adopted to define a person's gender include chromosomal makeup, the gender assigned at birth, and the gender with which a person identifies. The Department of Health does not adopt a single definition. Health policies and access to health programs are based on clinical evidence and clinical need for all Australians, regardless of gender identity, biological characteristics or genetic variations. Our programs are designed to be inclusive and to provide better health and well-being for all Australians. Oh, for goodness sake. Senator Antich, welcome to the program. Thank you again. This is unbelievable, isn't it? It's a bit unbelievable, Alan. It's sort of almost not unbelievable, though, knowing where the bureaucrats are up to in this country. I mean, I, I, I don't think the whole thing played out quite as simply as I'd hoped. Uh, but the truth is that, that, yeah, you're right, 78 days for those 78 words. Um, and for me, it wasn't even so much the response. It was the, 
the, the realization, of course, that our that our bureaucracy has drifted so far into this radical gender theory—that's just scratching the surface. I mean, I I think what it shows is how out of touch the bureaucrats now are. But has the Minister Mark Butler taken any action over this? I mean, during the COVID period, you and I and many others formed the view that our bureaucracies were completely out of touch. This proves it. What has Mark Butler had to say? Well, not much as far as I'm aware thus far. And you're absolutely right. We've probably seen this highlighted during the COVID period. We saw bureaucrats really with the stroke of a pen, um, doing things that had no bearing on their own life, almost this two-speed economy where you had the public service doing one thing with no need to worry about payrolls and small businesses getting beaten up by, by the process. And of course, what's the common theme to this? Well, the common theme is that politicians gave them that opportunity. Politicians in this state gave our bureaucracy the keys to the fortress, simply handed over the reins uh, and that shows to me the amount of work that needs to be done in the political space. Absolutely. Now, during the election campaign, Anthony Albanese described a woman as an adult female. Mr Morrison said an adult member of the female sex. Mr Albanese said it wasn't confusing. Premier Perrottet in New South Wales subsequently replied that a woman was, quote, a female adult human being. Didn't Mr Albanese get into trouble in March for saying that men can't have babies? He was accused of being transphobic because... He didn't answer yes to acknowledge the transgender males give birth. I mean, can they? Well, I've, I've never seen it done before. I don't think <laughs> men can. I don't, know. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Alan, but no, I've well, never seen it. I was hoping uh, you knew look, more than I did. <laughs> no, one, no one seems to know, and yet it seems to be a touchy subject. I mean, this is the irony of it is we know that this is out of touch with mainstream Australia. I mean, look at women's sport. 80% of Australians believe that men shouldn't be playing against women. In sport, we've got all of our leaders out you know, providing that definition of what a woman is, and yet they're still running scared of the bureaucrats. I mean, this goes to show yes. uh, what the real challenge here is. The real challenge here is getting politics to stand up and stop rolling to the beat of their drum. We know how this works. You get politicians confronted by departmental teams, hundreds of them. It takes a strong political force to stand up to that. It's like, yes, minister on steroids, but but here we are. These these departments are promoting craziness all Absolutely. across the country. I mean, the Oxford Dictionary defines a woman as an adult female human being. So surely if Mr Albanese believes that he must pull the department into line, or does he or does he not, if he believes what the Oxford Dictionary says, will he pull the department into line? Well, I'd be very surprised if he will. In fact, uh, I, I can imagine uh, that, that in politics generally, sadly, um, politicians don't want to go to war with their departments because ultimately, before you know it, the leaks start coming, uh, you know, the, the, the backstabbing starts coming. When in actual fact, what needs to happen is take the public on, on this journey with you. You know, I mean, people, Australians are supportive of that mainstream position. Australians don't want a 78 word definition of what a woman is. They just want the facts. They want the truth. Mm. And I think it's time is well overdue. But the trouble is too many of these politicians don't have a brain between their, ears, their heads. And if they alienate, alienate the bureaucracy, they most probably will get rubbish put in front of them. Uh, let's go away from this. And to viewers, let me just say, if you thought you've heard everything, wait till you hear this. Now, Alex Antich, the senator from South Australia, a very talented man, has written a splendid piece arguing that for two years, the trust that many Australians have in their institutions has been brought to an all-time low through the relentless incursions into their lives and liberty. He has argued that many of these incursions during coronavirus were cruel and unnecessary and failed to address the concerns of Australians who valued, quote, the fast evaporating tenet of freedom of choice. 
Just amp before we get on to this other issue, just amplify that point, Alex. Yeah, look, I think it really comes back to what I think has been the litmus test for where we're up to, which has been the COVID period. I think people have gone from thinking, well, you know, all of our institutions are here to look after us to this sort of uneasy realisation that, uh, you know, governments and institutions are not always pulling in the same direction. Frankly, we saw that. We, you know, many, many different instances, too many instances to even talk about now. But unfortunately, COVID, we saw it here in South Australia. Um, you know, even people like myself thrown into a Medi hotel at the behest of a public servant, a bureaucrat with no right of recourse, uh, you know, that's the sort of stuff that really takes people's yes. trust yes. away yeah. from the old I institutions. I mean, we just, we just had to accept. We were told to accept QR codes, density limits, border restrictions, a loss of medical autonomy. How, how though, how do we surrender to all this? Well, I think I fear, I think ultimately is the is the main precursor. I think that, that what has been most surprising has been at the start of this pandemic, we heard that old maxim, we're all in this together. And then slowly it became, we're all in this except for those who refuse to take the injections yes. or refuse to wear a mask. Um, fear did it. And unfortunately, it's overcoming that fear. People are starting to realise, I'm, I'm hopeful they'll realise what's happened and where we've mm. gone. But yeah. the problem with this stuff is, Alan, we never get the freedoms back unless no. there's someone there to champion them. And this is where politics has got to grow a spine and start pushing back on these because bureaucrats, one thing they love is control. One control. thing they love is keeping that power. And, mm. and, and that is a battle ahead of us. Absolutely, because the vaccines, the Prime Minister of the day said the vaccines were voluntary. But then they became a prerequisite for work. And as you say, this got livelihoods, it devastated families, and it undermined the trust in governments and the medical establishment. But the public have no say. We were just told to comply, COVID to be over quickly, but then the goalposts continue to shift. And now we have this. Now, we may not get time tonight to go to this through this in the detail it requires. And if so, Alex, I'll bring you back. But we have this trusted digital identity bill. What the hell is this? Is it before the parliament? And if so, who's presented it to the parliament? Well, first of all, you can tell it's trusted because it's got it in the name. That's the first giveaway. Um, it's always always the way. Bell's the cat on this. This is the first alarm bell for me is the word trusted in the title. Now, what this basically is, is a piece of legislation that is not before parliament yet, as I understand it, but has been has gone through a consultation process. It's designed to create a digital ID for every Australian compiling all of your buying habits, all of your social habits, all of your religious preferences. Everything you do online, everything you do out in the wider world is to be collated into one, one identification number and document. And it's being pitched along the lines of this is safe, uh, it'll, it'll help safety online, and it'll be one of those things that's, that's marketed in the sense of uh, it will provide you with convenience. Once again, coming back to this issue of giving up our information, giving up our liberty, sacrificing it at the altar of convenience. Now, you're right, this is a massive topic. We probably don't have time to go through no, it now, but Australians massive. need to be alarmed about this. They, they need to be alarmed about this. This ultimately will come to Parliament in the next period, probably the next few months, and what it will do is set up the very basic setup for a social credit style system. This Absolutely. Will, you've seen what's happened in Canada with the freedom rallies and the truckers over there. If we don't take this very seriously and look at this properly and dispose of it, we're going to get the same thing here. Well, well, we will come back, but in the time that's available to us, this to our viewers is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, a centralised, government-managed identity verification system. Everything about you 
everything about you is in the hands of government. So, Alex, am I right? Government collects all this information about us from anywhere it can get its hands on it. And what happens then? Like a giant vacuum, Alan. It soaks yes. up all the information it can get from you. We don't know where it's coming from. We saw all that stuff with Kmart and Bunnings the other week, facial recognition, all this sort of stuff. This dystopian future is on it. Now, what happens to it? That's a great question. Potentially, it could be sold. But the grave concern is what it's used in terms of how it's used against you. So, for example, uh, you know, if you, do, if you are someone who has refused a vaccine, the information will be there ready to go. Now, uh, the bureaucrats tell us, those that have drafted this information tell us it's voluntary at the moment. Well, guess what? So was the uh, the mandate situation at the start. These things never stay voluntary. This is going to be the greatest target for hackers. It will be, and it will be hacked because it always is. Um, this is a problem. This is something that politics and the wider community need to take very seriously well, immediately. Well, well, Alex, we'll leave it here. We'll leave it on this note. I'll come back to Senator Antich. This is staggering stuff. But governments, get this into our heads, would have extraordinary access to all our private and personal information. And on the basis of that, they could deny certain freedoms to us, certain opportunities, certain transactions, the whole kit and caboodle. Alex, we'll talk again in a fortnight. But thank you for your time tonight and thank you for the insights and for goodness sake, keep at it. Thanks, Alan. Great to be with you. There he is, Senator Alex Antich. We'll be back with him in a fortnight's time on this very issue. Look, before we go any further, I have no idea what they'll be doing today at the Wantima Country Golf Club, 15 kilometres northwest of Brisbane, near Strathpine. Their greatest supporter, 28-year-old Cameron Smith, has overnight won the British Open Golf Championship with a 20-under par total of 268, the lowest winning score ever in a British Open at St Andrews, bettering the performance of the great Tiger Woods, who won at 19-under par in the year 2000. His final round, Cameron's, was 64, it included six birdies on the back nine. Indeed, his back nine of 30 is the lowest score on the back nine by any champion in open history. Tiger Woods used to make history whenever he walked onto the golf course. Two years ago, 2020, in the US Masters, the same Cameron Smith became the only player ever at Augusta, even though he lost, to shoot four rounds in the 60s. I remember back in December 2012, 10 years ago, reminding my listeners of this same young man. He was an amateur then, playing in the Australian Open, when he reeled off four straight birdies on the back nine in the third round to almost take the lead as an amateur in the Australian Open. At the time, he said Adam Scott was his hero. And he's a mad supporter of Queensland Rugby League and a great admirer of the Rugby League, Cameron Smith. Incidentally, yesterday, Adam Scott was tied for 15th at 10 under, 10 strokes behind the great Cameron Smith. This is a wonderful story. Cameron Smith always says how grateful he is to his parents. He said, it cost them a lot of money for me to have a coach and a new driver, money which at times they probably didn't have. His mum worked in the furniture department in Chandler's in Brisbane. His mate from Pine River State High School, Jack Wilkos, was working the night shift for the Brisbane City Council. He quit the council and went to America to, America to work for his mate. His mate, Cameron, loves fishing, and Jack's there to make sure the rods and reels are ready and there's fresh bait and ice ready for their fishing expeditions. When he talks about his mum and his family and his sister, Cameron Smith gets emotional because through COVID, he said, he hadn't seen them for years. But when he won the Players' Championship earlier this year in Florida, 5.25 million pounds, American dollars rather, for the winner, the parents were there. 
His coach, Grant Field, has been with him forever, but he doesn't travel with him. And even though 28-year-old Cameron Smith is now arguably the best golfer in the world, the flowing mullet, see it there, will stay. It's a fabulous story. As his mate Jack says of Cameron, he's a bit rough around the edges, but he's solid as. Cameron Smith may have a lesson for the Australian rugby side when he said after winning the British Open, quote, over the years I've figured out that if you're going to win, you have to be really aggressive and sometimes take your chances. There have been a couple of times, he said, that I've been aggressive and it's cost me. But to win the big ones, you need to be really aggressive and take your chances, unquote. Just on rugby, a disgraceful episode of the test between Australia and England at the SCG on Saturday. The Eddie Jones coached England were worthy winners, but a supporter, or more than one it seems, heckled the Australian Eddie Jones as a traitor, presumably being an Australian coaching England. He had previously coached Australia. Eddie Jones is a professional coach. That's his job. Rugby can do without these yahoos. Eddie Jones should have ignored them. They weren't worth the energy of a reply. And congratulations to Leighton Hewitt, the former Wimbledon and US champion, who at 41 has become the 34th Australian to be inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. A worthy admission. And look, just on the point I made earlier in the program about the need for government to begin now and cut spending, there's waste everywhere. Why not start with people like Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister who's racked up a bill of $370,000 in taxpayer-funded expenses in the past 12 months, enough to buy an affordable home in some regional town. I should point out, nothing was spent on domestic flights by Paul Keating or Tony Abbott. There's plenty of room to cut waste and extravagance. You just need a government with the guts to do it. Well, the crises are mounting for the Albanese government. I spoke earlier about the debt and spending crisis, fueling inflation and interest rates. Then there's the education crisis, which Mark Latham and I talk about all the time, but so far little action by anyone in government on that. Little acceptance that education has become indoctrination. Then there's the energy crisis. There is somewhere a leaked draft of Labor's climate change bill, which I haven't seen, which apparently will enshrine Labor's target to cut emissions by 43% by 2030, based on 2005 levels, and to hit net zero by 2050. But the international think tank, another one of these woke outfits, Climate Analytics, says the 43% is not science-based. You can forget them. They like the teals and the greens. They want more. The draft communique from the Pacific Islands Forum, where they all travelled in jets, spewing out the very emissions they purport to oppose, the communique urged the world's big emitters to recognise climate change as a threat to the planet. The hysteria and alarmism continues. China, the world's largest emitter, ploughs on. But for the Pacific Islands governments, it's all about having your hand out for a bit more money. Nonetheless, Anthony Albanese signed up to the Pacific Island Declaration, which we were told adds pressure on Australia for even deeper emission cuts. I should point out the uncomfortable truth that the Australian Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources has argued that as at December 2020, greenhouse gas levels in Australia had decreased 15% from the 1990 levels, and that if fossil fuels are the problem, which I don't believe they are, but nonetheless, if they are, Australia's fossil fuel energy mix for 2020 was 76%. China's was 84%. The European Union's was 85%, which includes burning wood, 
Japan's 88% and America's 84%. Fossil fuels in Australia, 76% of the energy mix. Let's bring in the beacon of common sense on these issues, the Queensland Senator, Matt Canavan. Matt, thank you for your time again. When will someone concede that our broken electricity system is due to this mad rush towards renewable energy? Well, some people are, Alan, like you, myself and, and, uh, and you and your show, and I know lots of your viewers, uh, we need to get that message out. But unfortunately for those that, uh, uh, for those, unfortunately for us who have to pay these surging electricity bills, it would seem for those in power that renewable energy can do no wrong, uh, that it doesn't matter how much more we invest in solar and wind, uh, they'll never get the blame. A solar panel never gets blamed for anything. Keep in mind our energy regulator two weeks ago in a, in a report on our failing electricity system, they admitted that here in Australia, we have been installing solar and wind energy at a rate four times higher than in Europe or North America uh, on a per person basis. So we're going at four times the clip of those other countries like Germany in a crisis. But their conclusion was it's not the solar and wind to blame for the current crisis, we what we need to do is do more, more, more solar and wind oh, well, investments, yeah. and that will be the solution. And Alan, I've, I've come to the conclusion that uh, for these people, uh, their, their ethos in life is that the renewable energy investments must continue until morale improves. Mm. Many of these people are saying this because they're paid for by the government, and that's what the government wants to hear, of course. What would happen? Now, you're not an alarmist, nor am I. You're a realist and you're a scientist. What will happen in a world if coal-fired power doesn't exist? Well, we uh, can just look around the world. There's some real-world examples for us, uh, Alan. Uh, Germany shut down their coal-fired power stations and they're, they're talking about not being able to heat their people. They're talking about opening up warming spaces uh, where at night people can go and warm up uh, in a communal environment uh, because people will not have necessarily gas or heating options at home. Uh, we can look at Sri Lanka which drank the Kool-Aid of uh, you know, various uh, spruikers like uh, Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winning economist. He went there a few years ago and convinced them to... He said that their energy is from the sun. They don't need oil or coal anymore. They can just use the sun, sunshine. And look where that has got them. Their, their government has been disposed. Bankrupt. They're in a world of hurt where they can't afford to even import basic essentials to their country. I mean, that, that, that's the real-world example. It's right flashing like a big red siren in front of us around the world that wherever these solutions, so-called solutions in renewable energy are tried, failure uh, is the consequence. So we would be mad to continue this rush down this path, but unfortunately we have a government now that's uh, promised to take renewable energy in Australia to 82%. That's their goal. Uh, so I think for the moment they're, they're just um, battening down the hatches and, it, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't matter what will happen without what talk, what's happening in the real world for the last You talked party. about the possibility, if this keeps going, of Victoria experiencing what you called a renewable drought of one terawatt hour of electricity over just one week in the future. Just explain that. Well, it's not my figures. It's not even my term, Alan, I must say. It's uh, this new term that our energy regulators have uh, discovered in the last uh, few months. They call them renewable droughts, where the where the wind doesn't uh, blow enough. I mean, every day, of course, we have a drought, uh, uh, or every 24-hour period, we have a drought in solar power. It's called night. Uh, some of our experts don't seem to understand it, but <laughs> at night, the solar power goes away. Yes. Uh, and then sometimes at night, it's not windy. Uh, and in those environments, we have these things called droughts. So the, again, these figures are not mine. The energy regulator looked at 
well, uh, in current solar and wind conditions, what would happen if we don't have coal-fired power? And it, just for Victoria, there would be a period uh, in the 2030s where they'd be short one terawatt hour of power over one. They only did it over one week periods. It could be longer, it could be more, but one terawatt hour. What does that mean? I mean, look, that big battery, the world's biggest battery in South Australia, it's a sum total of 129 megawatt hours, not terawatt hours, megawatt hours. And so you would need over 7,500 of those big batteries just in Victoria uh, to keep the lights on during this drought period. I mean, that uh, at the cost of that big battery, that would mean a $700 billion investment, which is well above Victoria's total economic output for everything it produces. This is insane. And the fact that no one will sit down and do these basic calculations are level with us, level with us about the costs of this shows that, the, that they're not serious. When Chris Bowen is pressed, he says, we're going to have storage. We're going to have storage that's going to solve it. Well, what do you mean? How many batteries? How much does that cost? Where are you going to get all these minerals? These answers, which are key to keeping our lights on, keeping our economy function, functioning, are never answered. Absolutely. The crisis we've just been through, it was after, and we'll come to that in a minute as to how they solved that crisis by basically telling business to turn off their energy so that the teals could actually uh, have a warm blanket. But we'll come to that in a moment. The crisis we've just been through, Matt, was after, and you've written about this, the Liddell coal-fired power station in New South Wales, Hunter Valley, shut one 400 megawatt unit in April. Now it's got three other units, a total of 1,200 megawatts, which will shut next April. Then in 2025, our largest coal-fired power station, a rearing also in the Hunter, is due to shut. So by the end of the decade, almost two thirds of our coal-fired power could be shut. What the hell happens then? Well, uh, what happens then, I think, is uh, if we don't do if we don't do anything, this is assuming if we keep going down the path we're going. What happens then is almost every manufacturing in business in Australia will go to the wall. We will not be able to guarantee power uh, for people in in cold times or when it's very hot. Uh, there'll be great devastation across our land and. Uh, there's, there is still time. I mean, there, there's years to go till we get to that position. And uh, I mentioned and I wrote about the fact that in Florida, they've just installed a world-class, like like world's best technology for a gas-fired power station, the most efficient gas-fired power station in the world. They built that in three years uh, under the excellent governor there, Ron DeSantis. Uh, there's no reason why we couldn't, within a two or three years, build an off-the-shelf uh, high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power station. Not revolutionary technology, just stuff that's built all around the world, 350 of them being built around the world right now. Do one of those, or a few of those, ideally, in Australia, and we wouldn't have this problem. So what's the argument now against this? I mean, the, the, on the one hand, we could face the absolute destruction of our manufacturing industry and devastation for average families. On the other hand, we build a few power stations, cost us a few billion dollars, which is nothing compared to the cost of what people are going through right now, uh, and it might raise the temperature of the globe by 0.001 but degrees I mean, Celsius. Who's advising, who's, ad who's advising the Albanese government? Legislating for renewables and carbon dioxide limits. As you've said, and I've said many times, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Austria are all turning coal-fired power stations back on. China and India have plans to increase, increase their coal mining by 700 million tonnes a year. What we mine, what, 400 million tonnes? How are we yeah, here so out of step with the rest of the world? Well, I think people have become complacent. And, and look, uh, you know, I must say, Alan, my own party hasn't, uh, isn't running behind these options to build real things like coal-fired power stations. They've signed up to some of this madness too. 
Uh, and they're doing that because they're convinced, or people in my party have become convinced that Australian people want that. So what I'd encourage your viewers to do is contact your local member of parliament, get onto them and tell them, hey, this is ridiculous. So you want to keep manufacturing jobs in this country. You want to put Australia first and not just export our natural resources so other countries can beat us in the industrial arms race that's occurring around the world to grab manufacturing and, and become the factories of the world. Make sure we keep that resource here in Australia first for yeah. our use, our yeah. gas, our coal, yeah. and our uranium in the future. So contact your member of parliament because... What, what what hurts me is that people only hear one side of it or the members of parliament seem to only get yes. one message and they therefore think, oh, no, Matt, you're just off your own. You, yeah, you know, the people that's don't right. really want this. Well, yeah. I'm, not con I'm convinced but I mean, across the world, the bill for this, you, how you, much it costs, they will change you, their mind. You and, you and I have said a thousand times across the world there are 345 new coal-fired power stations being built. Now, what's the argument against us building a few? And we've got the high-quality coal, uh, <clears throat> hey? If we build yeah. our power stations well, near our mines, we don't pay the high global price for access to our coal. Honestly, it's beyond belief. Well, there is no, there's no explicit argument put, uh, Alan, because to do so would just be to reveal its, uh, its complete uh, nonsense. But, but I, what's implied is that if we were to build a coal-fired power station near Alan, that, 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 that um, natural disasters alike, which we haven't seen since Sodom and Gomorrah, would come raining down. Sulphur would come raining yes. down on Australia. We'd all be burnt in bushfires. When it was when there weren't, weren't lost a bushfire, there'd be floods that would flood us all. Uh, this is the kind of rubbish that's put. And as I say, that's implied. People don't come out and say that because they know how ridiculous it is. But the implication is if we were to do these things, natural disasters would become somehow worse in this country. But as you've said, there are 350 power stations being built around the world. And I know a lot of my colleagues in Canberra do not understand the coal industry, but I'll hopefully reveal one thing to them tonight, which is that the coal that's exported from Hay Point, from Dalrymple Bay, just north of where I am right now, that coal doesn't get washed on the boat. It doesn't get cleaned. When, it, when it's on the little boat trip over to Korea and Japan, it's the same coal that we use here. It's exactly the same. So it doesn't matter uh, if the coal-fired power station is built in China or Korea or Japan or here, from a, uh, from a climate perspective, from a global climate perspective. It does not matter. But so we seem to be comfortable with the fact that we'd export all that coal to be burnt in other mm. countries so they can have cheap power, they can have manufacturing jobs, and we just leave mm. our workers, our country, uh, with nothing, holding the bag. Do you it think is insane, uh, and the cost of this will become very apparent soon. Absolutely. There's a brick wall in front of us, I can tell you, a brick wall. Just before you go, do the public understand, we alluded to this before, that we kept the lights on this winter, by paying factories to turn their power off so that the households that voted teal could keep their rooms warm. I don't think they do yet, Alan, and, uh, and, and I, I'm sure there'll be a cover-up here of mammoth proportions to try and prevent people understanding this. In fact, the real figures are not yet uh, transparent. One of the things I will be doing when I finally get back to Canberra next week after the longest interval after election ever uh, I will be asking these questions about, okay, how, how much are we paying factories to turn down their power to keep the lights on? We know it's happening. There was a report today that roughly the first bill will be about a billion dollars just for the first, just for one week of that, that market suspension. It'll be higher than that. That's just potentially the mm -hmm. first bill coming. And that billion dollars will be added to all of your power bills later this year. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, there won't be a line item on your power bill. I definitely won't put that there saying... This is the green energy tax, but that's what it will be. That's what your power bill will go up. So 
thanks to this insanity that we are paying we are paying people not to produce. Right? That's what we're doing. Your power bill is going up and then paying businesses that would otherwise be well-functioning, profitable, competitive industries in this country survive for years, decades in Australia. Good we're on. paying them not to produce, mm. you know, to, to, to shut down. Uh, this is madness and we can't keep going on. We will not be able to afford this. And I'll just finish this, Alan. Keep in mind, this bill will be in the billions. As I say, that's just the first week, the first tranche of the, what we're costing. It's going to be billions and billions of dollars this, just this winter. It would only cost us 2 or $3 billion to build a coal-fired power station. We could have built a coal-fired power station, Absolutely. kept those smelters going, kept Absolutely. the refineries going, kept those people in work mm. and produced things for our country uh, uh, with the bill that's going to be added to everyone's power bill just well, this year. The most important point is to keep Matt Canavan going, I can tell you. And you'll be welcome here again very soon, Matt. Fantastic to talk to you. The agent of common sense, but common sense isn't common, is it? Good on you, Matt. Senator Matt Canavan, Liberal National Party Senator from Queensland. Look, I've always argued the truth of the axiom that when you're sick of saying it, someone may start to hear it. But it's clear that no matter how coherent the argument is about the urgency of addressing the dreaded foot and mouth disease, the Albanese government and its minister are at best marking time. Interesting, isn't it? In opposition, the now Agriculture Minister Murray Watt was amongst the keenest proponents of purpose-built quarantine facilities for COVID. He repeatedly called for dedicated COVID quarantine facilities to be built in every state. But instead of enacting emergency biosecurity measures, including quarantine, the minister flew to Bali to be hosted by the Indonesian ambassador. It seems Labor's appetite for quarantine has diminished. Presumably, the minister prefers flying into Bali, a foot and mouth disease struck tourist destination, rather than stay in Australia to enact emergency biosecurity controls. I said last week this crisis has not received anything like the publicity or attention it deserves. I mentioned that after the State of Origin match, Nathan Cleary and his teammates flew off to Bali. I'm not criticising them. There's no evidence anywhere that the Albanese government understands this crisis, nor would these young men have been told. Let's face it, this did not happen yesterday. The first case of foot and mouth disease in Bali was detected late last month. More than 300,000 animals across Indonesia have been affected. It doesn't infect human beings, but the disease spreads rapidly amongst cloven hoofed animals, that is, those with divided hoofs. It is an airborne disease, transmitted through contaminated feed, faeces, or even clothing. When this overtook Britain, as I told you last week in 2001, more than six million pigs, cows, and sheep had to be destroyed. But our agricultural industry is much bigger than that of the UK. If it strikes here, and it may already have struck, pigs, cattle, and sheep would have to be destroyed, and Australia is rife with feral pigs, feral goats, feral deer. Does someone in the federal government understand that this disease once in Australia, would be unstoppable. The virus is highly infectious. It spreads rapidly between livestock. It can survive on objects like vehicle tyres, livestock trucks, equipment and clothing. As I said last week, the Penrith footballers could easily pick up the virus, pack their clothes, return home and unknowingly let the virus loose. But all we get is a photo of our agriculture minister, there he is, Murray Watt, shaking hands and smiling with his Indonesian counterpart. And the promise to send, promise down the track, to send a million vaccine doses to protect Indonesian livestock against the disease. 
But the disease has increased in Indonesia in a week by 50,000 cases. It has spread to 22 of the archipelago nation's 37 promises, uh, provinces. Does that frighten the tripe out of anyone in the Australian government? The sadness for animal lovers lies with the fact that all animals infected on Bali have been killed. All our agriculture minister can say is that biosecurity would be ramped up at airports. Would be that Indonesia will get $5 million to buy and distribute vaccines. I said on Thursday that tourists from Indonesia should not be allowed into Australia and tourists out of Australia should not be allowed into Indonesia. But all we're told is that more biosecurity officers and detected dogs will be deployed at Australian airports. Not are deployed, will be. This is nowhere near good enough. On top, by the way, of foot and mouth disease, there is the prospect of lumpy skin disease entering the country, also likely to make its way from Indonesia because it can be carried by biting insects such as mosquitoes and could spread across the Indonesian archipelago into Papua New Guinea, Torres Strait, Northern Australia. Lumpy skin disease can also cause significant production losses in beef and dairy cattle and spreads easily through herds and it has spread rapidly through Asia over the past three years. Now, we have for years been a disease-free nation, but Canberra, on both these issues, is asleep at the wheel. Senator Watt, the Agriculture Minister, was gung-ho on closing the borders over COVID. Suddenly, he's silent on the issue, or worse, oppositional to it in relation to foot and mouth disease. Or will he want to say that this is also something they've inherited from the previous government? The choices are simple, ban travel to Indonesia or impose a period of quarantine for travellers returning from Indonesia, not just to avoid the economic loss of billions of dollars, but to avoid the suffering and cruel death of millions of hoofed animals if it were to happen. But listen to this, as proof that this issue or on this issue, the government is all talk and no action, or to use the language of the bush, all hat and no cattle, Consider this. I spoke about this last Thursday night. I ended by saying the two questions need to be asked and answered. Should Australians wanting to return from Bali be allowed back into the country? And should Australians wanting to go to Bali be told they can't? Well, since those comments, there have been 67 direct flights from Bali to Australia. 17 to Sydney, 16 to Melbourne, 4 to Adelaide, 10 to Brisbane, 4 to the Gold Coast, 8 to Perth, 4 to Darwin and 4 to Cairns. My information is that Cairns receives 1,400 people from Bali each week and Brisbane 23,000 each month. That works out at 200 a day to Cairns and 770 a day to Brisbane. Average this out over all Australian destinations and roughly 4,600 travellers have come from Bali to Australia since I spoke last Thursday. Can the Albanese government and its minister, Murray Watt, guarantee that none of those travellers were bearers of foot and mouth disease? I have no doubt they can't. In which case, Murray Watt, the minister, should resign and give the gig to someone who'll do the job. Just before we go, I'll have more to say about this tomorrow with Peggy Grandy. But did you see this pathetic Joe Biden on his first visit to the Middle East as US president? Watch this.
How can you be sure that another incident, another murder like Jamal Khashoggi won't happen again? God love you. What a silly question. How could I possibly be sure of any of that? I just made it clear. If anything occurs like that again, they'll get that response and much more. Look, you've heard me say before, and when I criticize Xi Jinping for slave labor and what they're doing uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Western mountains of, of China, and he said, I had no right to criticize China. And I said, look, I am president of the United States of America. For the United States president to remain silent on a clear violation of human rights is totally inconsistent with who we are, what we are, and what we would do, what we believe. And so I'm not going to remain silent. Can I predict anything is going to happen, let alone here, let alone any other part of the world? No. But I don't know why you're all so surprised the way I react. No one's ever wondered that I mean what I say. The question is I sometimes say all that I mean. And what, a, a, and you know, what about your <laughs> What the hell is all that about? I mean, <laughs> uh, Jamal Khashoggi, of course, he's just been to Saudi Arabia. I'll talk about this tomorrow. And of course, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist and correspondent, was murdered. And, <laughs> and he was supposed to have nailed... Uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, but there are questions as to whether that happened or not. I'll look at that issue tomorrow, but the bloke just says things, most of it irrelevant, a stream of what... We talk about stream of consciousness, don't we? This bloke's a stream of unconsciousness. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from an inflation rate of last month's figures, 9.1%, the highest level in 41 years. A survey released last week found that more than half of Americans, understandably, believe Biden's policies have made economic conditions worse. 59% said they doubted Biden's ability to handle an international crisis. I mean, is anyone prepared to come out and demand that this incompetent president quit? Or is the protection racket, that is the left-wing mainstream media, going to continue to not report this sinking ship of a presidency? A Siena College poll shows 64% of Democrats, not even waiting for the midterm election results, want their candidate in 2024 to be someone other than Biden. This means that if he decides to run again, there'll be a primary challenge, as there was in 1980 for Jimmy Carter. As the Wall Street Journal wrote, quote, the reason most Americans don't want Mr Biden to run is that it's clear by now that he has cognitive problems unacceptable in a person responsible for conducting the presidential office. Now, I made those points 15 months ago. It's taken even the Wall Street Journal a while to catch up. But thank God they're at last willing to call it out. How else do you describe a president who said at Israel's Ben-Gurion Airport four days ago that people should keep alive the honour of the Holocaust? And then he quickly corrected himself. He meant to say the horror. uh, I've said it plenty of times. He doesn't belong in the White House He belongs in a different home, if you know what I mean. That's it from me. I'll see you tomorrow night right here on ADH TV. Good night.